feel at home. Um, so you can look around, you can see the place is a bit different uh, than when you uh, came six months ago in March. Um, got the wall knocked out here. Don't use the bathrooms because there is uh, nothing in them. <laughs> they are, they've been gutted, still in the process of remodeling. Um, but hopefully that will be done in, in the near future. Um, if you have children, um, we, we have childcare provided. Um, so feel free to bring them um, from every week. And then I think in a few weeks, the church even will be providing childcare during the Sunday school hour. Um, well, like I said, it's been six months. It's hard to believe. Six months. March was the last time we were together. And uh, some sense it's gone fast. In some sense it's gone pretty slow. Um, my goal for this morning really is to help us just think through um, the vision for our class. Um, think through why do we do what we do as Koinonia. Um, there's a number of you who are new here. So help you think through uh, what we're about, and then old members uh, refresh our, our memory. What are what are we to be about as Koinonia? Um, what are some things that we do as a class? Why do we do what we do? Um, so to get us going, I just want to read the purpose statement that I've written out for our class. If you go on the church website, go under Koinonia under equipping classes, you can see sort of the purpose statement for our class. This is what we have written. Our aim as Koinonia is to pursue fellowship, a greater love for Christ, and Christian maturity together. We pursue these by devoting ourselves to careful study of the scriptures, focused teaching on marriage and family, and intentional discipleship between growing believers. As you can see, our class is made up of sort of a wide range of, of ages, and that's intentional. We want that. Um, we want the Titus II type of, of, of ministry where people who are a little more advanced come alongside people who are a little younger, a little more behind, and help one another grow. At Timber like Sunday school classes, equipping classes, whatever you want to call them, they are the main shepherding arm of the church. Okay, so we have a lot of ministries, women's ministries, Grace and Granite, um, small groups, important, good things. The Sunday school classes are the main shepherding arm of the church. Um, what do I mean by that? They're the main way, the primary way for you to be connected to the body. They're the primary way for you not to get lost in the, in the crowds. They're the primary way for you to receive shepherding and, and oversight, that your needs would, would be made known to one another. Uh, we do practical things. We help people with meals. They have a baby. They have um, sickness, whatever it is. Um, practical needs and also spiritual needs that, that you have. Um, your, your needs could be made known to the class leadership and even to the, the church elders. Um, Koinonia is one of many equipping classes at the church, and they're essential. They're the main shepherding arm of, of the church. It's where you build relationships, where you come and disciple one another. So this morning, I just want to consider the three things that I mentioned in our purpose statement that we want to be about. So how are we going to achieve our goal of fellowship, love for Christ, and Christian maturity? It's by these three things. Careful study of the scriptures. That's what we do now during this time. Focus teaching on marriage and family, 
and intentional discipleship between growing believers. So what do I mean by each of these things? Why are they important, and how will we accomplish them? So I'm going to begin with number one, the careful study of Scripture this morning, because that's what we do Sunday morning at this time. We devote ourselves to careful study of Scripture and exposition. Uh, we've been going through the Gospel of John. We finished chapter 3 right before uh, we had been uh, cut off by coronavirus. So we're about ready to jump into chapter 4 um, in a couple weeks. But I want to spend most of the time this morning talking about this point one, careful study of Scripture. What the point of that is. Why do we put such an emphasis on that in the Sunday school class during this hour? And the order is intentional. It is from this time, from being nourished by the word, that the other two things are going to grow out. That our focus on marriage and family is going to be nourished and properly set in its right place. And discipleship relationships in our class is going to overflow from being nourished by the word as well. So like I said, we've been going through John. Um, and uh, goal next week is to do an overview, chapters 1 to 3, where we've been, get us ready for chapter 4. But this week, I sort of want to step back and just consider the Gospel of John as a whole, what the purpose of John is, and what the purpose of John for our class is. How, how specifically does it help us as a class? Why John? Um, or to put it another way, how does studying a book like the Gospel of John help us meet our goal of fellowship, love, and Christian maturity. So if you remember, um, way back, uh, we, we, we started this study on John by talking about his purpose statement. It's in John 20, 31. You probably uh, have memorized it. John says, these things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's why the Gospel of John has been written. John is written in order to demonstrate that Jesus is indeed the long-anticipated Messiah promised in the Old Testament. That's why John was written, to demonstrate that. But John didn't simply write to convey information. Why did he write? He wrote, so that you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And he wrote, not that you would just have any kind of faith. We learned back in chapter 2 of John that there is a kind of faith that Jesus rejects. This Nicodemus kind of faith that's willing to affirm the supernatural in Jesus but it doesn't come to Jesus in a sense of one's own desperate need of him and in a desperate dependence on what he has come to provide. John didn't write to, to elicit that kind of false faith, but to elicit a kind of faith that, that recognizes my desperate need for Christ and depends on him. That's why John wrote. And... John is writing not only that we would exercise a one-time faith, sort of a once and done, I prayed the prayer, I signed the card, and I'm good to go. John wrote that we would become disciples who are characterized by a lifetime of dependent <coughs> trust in Christ. 
John 8, 31, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. There are those who are disciples and there are those who are truly his disciples. Real disciples, not false ones. That's why we need this gospel. Those who begin as disciples but do not abide in his word by faith are shown to have been never his disciples. That's the point. We're truly his disciples if we have persevering faith. How do you have that? How do you have persevering faith? By feeding on Christ and his word. That's why we're doing what we're doing. That is the gospel of John. That's why we're gathered right now. But that's not all. John's aim in this gospel, and therefore the aim of our class and study in this gospel, is that we would have life, eternal life. John said, these things are written so you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing you may have life, eternal life. That's the purpose of our faith. But eternal life is much more than life that never ends. I think when we hear eternal life, we just think perpetual existence, even in heaven. And obviously it includes that, but it is much, much more. Eternal life is the life of God taking up residence in the soul of man. It's the life of God which comes into his people and transforms them and to be in his special people. It is synonymous with the new birth. If we had time, I would take you to 1 John, in chapter 3. He's talking about the new birth, and then he says, he says, we know that no one who has eternal life abiding in them is a murderer. Talking about one who's filled with hate towards his brother. You have eternal life abiding in you now through the new birth. That's why John wrote. So to say it another way, only genuine, persevering faith results in the creation of new life in the soul. And that life results in bearing much fruit, obedience, holiness, fruitfulness, holy living, good works, freedom from sin, lives pleasing to God is the result of Christ's life in us, which is the result of true abiding faith. Those who persevere in faith in Christ have their life in them and so produce much fruit. We begin by receiving Christ's life in us by faith in the gospel, and we persevere by faith in that same gospel. Dependence on Christ and his work. And the result is fruitfulness. Listen again, chapter 8, 31 to 32. If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples, and you will know the truth. And the truth will what? Set you free. Free from what? Free from sin. Into a life of holiness. In other words, this gospel is written not simply to elicit initial faith in Christ. Well, that's important. Everyone has to have a starting point. This gospel is written to nourish and be a means of persevering faith for you today. 
and so that we would grow in holiness, Christian maturity. It's as we cling to Christ, as we cling to his finished work, his promises, that we grow in our marriages, in our parenting, in our families, in our work, in our minds, in our attitudes, in our thoughts, in our words, in every aspect of our lives. So you see why this is so essential. We don't merely need 10 practical tips for a healthy marriage. Although those are helpful. They're, they're useful and important. And we'll be discussing at the very end how we're going to try to do some of those things. Talk about specific application. But the point is, is, if you don't get the order right, if you don't get Christ right, if you don't understand abiding in him right, none of that is going to matter. You can have 100 steps to a happy marriage, and it won't help. You've got to get Christ right. Or to put it one more way, it is as we grow in our knowledge of the great love of God to us in Christ and all that he's accomplished and provided in Christ, as we depend on that, we'll glorify God by bearing much fruit, which is the goal of discipleship and our salvation and the purpose of this book. That's why we are in the Gospel of John. So for the rest of our time, I just want to take one more step back and now think about a few categories of thought in the Gospel of John that help us think through what we just, what we just said. So let me pass out our outline here. Um, I think I should have enough. If not, um, all outlines are posted on our website and uh, through the Koinonia page and you can go and, and find those. So I want to help us think through John's purpose, his goal, by thinking through a few, a few categories here um, and applying them to us at the very end with some helpful implications. I've titled this lesson, Reorienting Our Lives to God's purpose through studying the Gospel of John. We need to reorient our lives afresh to God's purpose through the Gospel of John. So first, John's Gospel highlights for us the decisive accomplishment of God's mission. God has been on mission ever since the creation of the world. He's not passive. He has a plan. He has a specific goal, a specific mission that he's been all about from day one. And we miss the significance and the glory of salvation, the gospel, when we simply reduce it down to my individual forgiveness of sins, even though that is massively important. Where would we be without the forgiveness of sins? That's part of it. It's just much, much more is what God has been about, what he's been after. God's purpose in creation was to display his glory as he dwelt with a holy people in unhindered fellowship. That's what God's been about, to dwell with a holy people in unhindered 
fellowship. The Garden of Eden, I don't know what we think about when you think about the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was like a holy temple, a place where God would dwell with mankind. This temple was to expand and spread over the, the whole world as mankind produced image bearers, reflecting God's glory and worth and worship through lives of obedience and holiness all through the world. It was to become a, a global temple, if you will. But then we know the fall happens, right? Right? Man is banished from the presence of God. Instead of God's glory spreading through the world through image bearers, what happens? Rebellion and, and a twisted image of God spreads through the world. Instead of fellowship, there is judgment. But amazingly, we find out that God had actually ordained the fall to take place. God ordained what had happened to happen in order that his mission would be accomplished and his glory would be displayed in an even greater way. Than it would have before the fall. So then we turn next in Genesis. And we find God makes his covenant with, with Abraham. And it would be through this covenant with Abraham. That all of God's purposes. And his mission. Of dwelling with man. With a holy people would be fulfilled. And all of the other covenants we read in scripture. Are built on this one. This is where it's coming. His plan is going to be fulfilled. And then we turn over a little bit. We come to the Mosaic Covenant, God's covenant with, with Moses, through Moses to the people of Israel. God is progressively revealing his purposes and accomplishing this mission, the same mission he had at creation. He freely chose Israel. He redeems them out of Egypt. He brings them out to do what? To dwell with them, right? He, at Sinai, creates this tabernacle, this temple in which God would come dwell with his people. And the whole purpose, what's the whole purpose of the Mosaic Covenant? The whole purpose was to regulate a holy God living among an unholy people without consuming them in his wrath. Here comes a holy God now coming to fulfill his purposes in creation, live among his chosen people, and regulate that. Look at Leviticus, if you will. We're going to be going to a number of passages this morning. Leviticus 26. Go to a number of passages. We'll just go to one. Leviticus 26, verse 12. He's given them his, his law, how to regulate. They are to be holy people. He's in their midst. Verse 12. Sounds very much like the Garden of Eden. And I will walk among you. And I will be your God. And you shall be my people. And it's this refrain, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's echoed over and over and over again. In the scriptures. That is God's purpose. That was his purpose in creation. And that's his purpose now. In the Mosaic Covenant. I'll be your God and you will be my people. And this has massive implications on how they were to live, right? They were to be what? Holy because this holy God was among them. And he is holy. Holy as I am holy. 
Well, we know how the story goes. Israel totally fails to keep this covenant. Miserably fails. They do not become a holy people. They do not become a fit dwelling place for this holy God. The law never had power to change their hearts. And as a result, they receive the curses of the covenant. They go into exile. It looks like God's purposes, again, have failed. But they haven't. God ordained this. He was in control and accomplishing his purposes. And then we turn to the prophets. And in the prophets, we learn of a new covenant. A new covenant that God will make with his people. And it will be distinctively different from the first one with people of Israel through Moses. Look over at Jeremiah 31 with me. We're going somewhere with this, okay? So just hold on. Jeremiah 31. It's massive implications on us, how we live, our lives, who we are, what we're here to be about. Jeremiah 31, 31. This is the promise of the new covenant in light of Israel's total failure to keep the Mosaic covenant and God's purpose and promises. I'll be your God and you'll be my people. Look at verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. So what's going to be different about this covenant? Look, I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. There it is again. You see that? I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's his goal. That's his purpose. It's driving everything he does. And no longer shall they teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know Yahweh, for they all shall know me. Not just know about me. Know me intimately and a personal acquaintance with me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive all their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. That is the new covenant promise of God. The difference between this and the first covenant is that the great problem of God's people will be remedied. What is that? God will not just give them his law, but he will write his law where? On their, on their hearts. What does that mean? It means through the gift of God's spirit, God's law would be what characterizes the minds, the thoughts, the affections, the desires of God's people. It would no longer simply be what they ought to do. It would be what they want to do. That is what the promise of the new covenant is going to be. It's going to transform this people. And they would know the Lord. They would be intimately acquainted with him and a friendship with him and his ways. They'll be forgiven of all their sin and filled with his spirit. Go to Ezekiel now, chapter 11. Ezekiel 11. Verse 19. Again, keep, keep these categories. The, the, the new covenant reality is what God's going to do and his goal. Where's he going? He wants to dwell in unhindered fellowship with the holy people. 
Verse 19 of chapter 11. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I'll put within them. I'll remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. Here it is. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. Go to chapter 36, Ezekiel. Chapter 36, verse 25. Again, new covenant promise. It's this text that's going to prepare us for John 3 when we get there in a minute. Ezekiel 36, 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers and you shall, here it is, you shall be my people and I will be your God. Again, that's God's purpose and it will be accomplished through the new covenant. That is the goal. What does this mean? I will be their God and they shall be my people. It means that he will be their God. He will dwell with them in love and in favor and in fellowship, not in judgment. And they will be his people, meaning that they will be a people who reflect his holiness, who reflect his glory, and will be a suitable dwelling place for him. A place that is a fit abode for God's dwelling. That is... Is God's goal. It's driving everything he does, and that's the goal of the new covenant promises. It will only happen if these new covenant realities are, are present. And it's this language that now prepares us for the gospel of John. But before we go there, go with me to Revelation 21. I want you to see that this is God's plan from beginning to end. It's driving everything that happens in the Bible, all of his covenants, it's decisively accomplished in Christ, and this is the final fulfillment right here, Revelation 21. Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Interesting, this city, it's a people, prepared as a bride. It's the redeemed, God's church, as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place, the tabernacle of God is with man. And what? He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. That is what he is about. You're driving everything he does. And it's accomplished decisively through what Christ came to do in the new covenant promises. So that's God's mission. And in light of this, we come to John 1.14. And the word became flesh and what? Dwelt, tabernacled among us. God among us in Christ. God's mission reaches a decisive climax in the incarnation. God not only now dwells with man in Christ, but it's now through the incarnation of Christ, the God-man, the Son of God, 
that he is crucified and resurrected and exalted and through his death accomplishes all of these purposes, these promises of the new covenant and gives them to his people. And that's what we're going to look about, look at right now. So that's the next point. Christ's work and the accomplishment of God's mission. How exactly did Christ accomplish God's purposes? How do we experience these now? How does John describe life for believers in this Messiah? And there are three ways. See it in your outline. Number one, Christ accomplishes this mission, these promises of the new covenant, through the new birth. The primary problem with humanity, Jew and Gentile, are two things. You have two problems. Defilement from the guilt of sin. You have a guilty record. It's a long record. And slavery to the power of sin. John calls you a slave of the devil apart from Christ. We're polluted with a record of guilt and we are slaves to sin. That's why... God's purpose couldn't be fulfilled through the Mosaic Covenant, and the Mosaic Covenant had no power to grant that. The new birth that Jesus provides through his death and resurrection answers both of these problems. Look at John 3. John chapter 3. He's talking with Nicodemus. Look at verse 3. Jesus says to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, or born from above, born from God, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Look down to verse 5. Jesus repeats himself and gives a little more clarity. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now this phrase, water and spirit, if I have time to go through everything, you can... Go find the uh, sermon we did on it online. But this phrase in water and spirit is clearly built on the new covenant promises. Ezekiel 36, what we already saw. Jesus is saying unless one experiences new life that's characterized by water, a total cleansing and purification of defilement from sin, and experiences spirit, a total transformation of his spirit through the Holy Spirit, he will not enter the kingdom. Unless these two problems, my defilement of sin and my enslavement to sin are dealt with, you will not get in the kingdom. But Jesus has come to be the ultimate purifier through his death as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Isaiah 53, like substitute who bears the sins of many. It's glorious. And he's come as the spirit provider because he's the beloved son with whom the father is well pleased and he gives the spirit freely to his followers. You have to have both water and spirit, cleansing and a, the Holy Spirit to get into the kingdom, to be changed, to become a people where God will dwell with and they both come through the son. Or to say it another way, Jesus has come to create a new humanity. He's come to create a new humanity, to begin God's new creation process by recreating new people for God, 
purified, freed from sin's defilement, freed from sin's power and dominion over your life. That's why he has come. The question is, how do you become part of this new humanity? Well, we're in John 3. Look down at verse 14. It's a glorious statement. I told you back then when we studied it, I think this is one of the clearest pictures of saving faith in the Bible. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Physical life was communicated to the people of Israel as they looked at that bronze snake hanging in the pole as they realized, I'm toast, I've been bitten, I've got venom all in me. My only hope is the provision of God, and I look dependently on it. In the same way, eternal life, the life of God, the new birth, cleansing from sin, power in the spirit, this whole package is yours. How? Looking outside yourself. I have no hope except what Christ has accomplished. Looking to him, independent, expectation, faith. I need you, Jesus. It's yours. That's how you get part of this new people, this new humanity, the new birth. We can look at 1 John. We don't have time. Here are lots of texts about the new birth. But the point is, is that the new birth is God's creation of a new people. It's a people now with his DNA. It's a people now that, that begin to look like God. They, they have his DNA in them. They're not perfect. John says, if you say you don't have sin, you're, you're a liar. What's a believer? He's a confessing person. But they're characterized by progressive growth in righteousness. So that's the first way we can speak about how Christ's work decisively accomplishes God's mission. So let me go on now, try to pick up the pace a little bit so we can get to some of these implications. There's another way. Christ accomplishes this mission and the promises of the new covenant through the creation of a new temple. The Gospel of John, we discover that Jesus is himself the new temple. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. John 2.19, Jesus said, destroy this temple. And John says he was talking about the temple, which is his body. So since Jesus is the temple. But in another sense, Jesus has come to create a temple. A new temple, a new dwelling place for God. Not a physical structure, but the ultimate goal of God. The temple, which would be this new humanity. This people. It would no longer be geographical. It would no longer be access to along ethnic lines, Jews only. It would be none other than the redeemed people of God. Flip over to John 4, 21. We're coming here very soon. Give you a sneak, sneak peek to it. John 4, 21. Jesus talking to a Samaritan woman. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, is now here, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For God is seeking such people to worship him. In other words, this is the same reality of the new birth, just a different picture. Those who believe in Christ are given the Holy Spirit, and they become a holy dwelling place for God. They're transformed in their fundamental nature. They become true 
worshipers who are characterized by worshiping their inner being, affection to God, obedience to God from the heart. We can go to a number of other texts, and we don't have time. Go to John 7. Listen to this imagery of water gushing forth from a believer. This picture of a temple. You know God's temple has this picture of water pouring out of it. Go to Ephesians 2, 19 to 20. Hear Paul say a very similar thing. Believers individually and believers corporately as the church are God's new temple. The presence of God dwelling with them as a holy people, fulfilling his purposes through the new covenant. And this has massive implications on how we, we live. But before we go there, let me show you one more place. One more thing. How does Jesus accomplish it? It is by being a life-giving vine which nourishes abiding disciples. Flip over to John 15. John 15. Very familiar. It's where the rubber meets the road for us right here. John 15, verse 4. Abide in me. And I in you, there's that similar language again. The branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, that's the one that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. It's the picture Jesus gives of himself. The point is to illustrate that Jesus is the fruitful vine. He is everything Israel failed to be. And from now on, membership in the people of God comes by being connected to Christ, being connected to this vine. And when you are the life of Christ, the Holy Spirit, all that Christ is now fills your life, just like the sap and the juices of the vine start filling the branches. That's the picture. And the result is fruitfulness. So let me draw out a few points here really quick. Any fruit that we bear in the Christian life is the result of Christ's life in us. His spirit, his love, his joy. You see, Christ doesn't simply enable us to love. But in a profound sense, we love with the very love of Christ that fills us. Christ doesn't just enable us to be joyful. We rejoice with the very joy of Christ that fills us in his spirit, in his work, in his word. Two, the fruitfulness of his people is mandatory. Fruitlessness, no pursuit of obedience, is evidence we do not have this life in us. Love and obedience is the necessary overflow of union with him. Three, Christ's life abides in believers as believers remain, abide in his love by dependent faith. This process takes place by continuing moment by moment, sucking and sucking and sucking and drinking, depending on Christ. What he's done, his love, receiving that. Galatians 2.20, the life I live, I live how? By faith in the Son of God who loved me. And who gave himself for me. Every moment, abide. And it's as we abide in him and he in us that we bear much fruit and experience the goal of God's mission. Creating a holy people in whom he dwells and who dwell with him. The point is, 
is that as we do that, what we're experiencing here, as we're growing, we're being transformed into a holy people suitable for his presence. People that are more and more a comfortable abode for God. So those are the three ways the Gospel of John speaks of these realities. It's the new birth, the temple, and remaining in Christ like a vine. So let me give you three implications really quickly. Why am I spending so much time on this? Look at the back of your page there. Number one, sanctification is not icing on the cake. Growth in holiness, growth in Christ-likeness is not something extra that you can just take or leave. It is the goal of your salvation. You were saved unto something, not just forgiveness of sins, but unto being a holy people for the Lord. No, it's not the grounds of your salvation. It's not what makes you saved. It's just what you were saved unto. Becoming a holy people of God filled with his presence, progressively transformed into his image. And if I don't make that a priority in my life, I have either greatly misunderstood my salvation or I have no life in me. Number two, discipleship in the church is essential. Discipleship in the church is essential. God has designed this growth in holiness as God's dwelling place to take place among the corporate temple of his people, his body. This temple body functions and becomes a suitable dwelling place for God as the body builds the body up in love. Go read Ephesians chapter 4. That's why we do corporate gathering. There's been a lot of talk about corporate gathering recently because of coronavirus. Forsake not the assembly of yourselves. That's why the corporate body matters much. What we're doing now is very significant. It's as we build discipleship relationships. Remember, that was the second aim of our class, to build these discipleship relationships with one another. We confront sin in one another's life and apply truth to one another's life. That what? We grow more and more into this temple-like structure of the Lord. We are his temple, but yet we're not fully his temple yet because there's still a lot of gunk and mess in my life, and we're not yet a suitable place perfectly for his dwelling. And at this point, man, I just wanted to pull out a book. Um, we are almost done with our book. We've got one more book to go. In uh, Koinonia, we have a men's fellowship group on Saturday mornings. Encourage every one of you men to come be a part. Um, in a couple weeks, we're going to start a book by Jerry Gregg, Paul Shirley, called Free to be Holy. It's on progressive sanctification. An excellent work. Um, goes right along with this, with this theme and really looking forward to diving in with it. So we'll be doing that in a few weeks. Get it on Amazon. I don't think it's too expensive. Cost is a problem, let me know. Uh, shouldn't it be? Not bad. I think it's like 10 bucks. So um, really good book. So go ahead and order it. But that's what we're about. We're about growing in Christ-likeness together. Number three. Third thing in our purpose statement said we're focused on teaching marriage and, and family. I just want to point out here that now that we've laid this groundwork, we're ready to get into those specifics of, of marriage and, and family. Don't you see how all that we've talked about should transform now the way I think about what my marriage needs and what my family really needs? 
It changes how I think about those things. The focus shifts from my, from my selfish pleasures, from getting marriage to work the way that, that I want it to work, or, or parenting the way that I want it to work, to what? To being about what God is all about, being a holy people that pleases him and reflects him, my growth, my sanctification. That is the goal. The goal is no longer a comfortable marriage for me, for my personal preferences, but that I, with my spouse, would become a holy temple for the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, together with all the saints. That's what we're about. How will we practically do that? Coming weeks, I want to work through resources. I'm going to be giving you guys resources on marriage, parenting, family. We're going to find creative ways to get together. Just fellowship and... Uh, Eat ice cream, get some pizza, get together, and then just talk. What we're learning, how we're discussing these things, ask questions. Well, it is 10:10. That's the time to go. I want to close in a uh, in a prayer, a prayer that Paul prayed. It's on your outline there. Ephesians chapter three, verses 14 to 21. Before I do that, are there any questions, any comments? Yes. Uh, Saturday morning. Yes. Okay. So. Um, we met yesterday, and the question's in the air, are we going to meet this coming Saturday? We normally do every other Saturday, um, but for a couple um, scheduling conflicts, we're thinking about doing this coming Saturday. Um, I need to get all of you, by the way, I need to get all of you on the email roster. So after class, come to me. I'll give you my email address. You can email me. I'll get you on the roster. So I'll send that information out. We meet at 730 at my house, usually every other Saturday, um, and we may be doing it this Saturday. Maybe doing it next. So, but I'll, I'll let y'all know through the through the email. So, good question. Any other questions, comments? All right, let us uh, let's pray. But pray by praying Paul's words. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth derives its name, that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell. The idea there is he might make his abode. He might be comfortable in your hearts through faith that all that trash, all that gunk would be cleaned progressively through his spirit so it becomes more and more a suitable dwelling place for him. We pray that having been rooted and grounded in the love of God and the gospel, we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. It's so great. And that by knowing it, we will be filled with all the fullness of God, with his presence and with his likeness. That's what we want, Father. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we ask or think according to the power that work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. We love you, Father. Thank you for your word. Do this work in each of us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys are dismissed. And uh, please find me if you are not on our email roster. I will. Scratch down on a piece of paper and give you my give you my email. So thank you all. We will see you next week.